According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Deuteronomy tonight. This is day 78 for the uh, Through the Bible calendar. Deuteronomy 16. We got a, f- a little bit into chapter 16 last night. We left off with verse 17. So we'll pick up right there tonight, uh, Deuteronomy 16, 18, and we'll finish this chapter, and then we'll go through chapter 17, 18, 19, 20. We've got a lot, a lot to cover tonight, as well as nine verses in chapter 21. So uh, fasten your seatbelts. We're going to take off and, uh, and hit it hard. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time in the truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you tonight thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness and calling upon your faithfulness once again, Father. We, we don't take it for granted, but we do expect it and we, uh, because you are so faithful, Father. So we ask for it and uh, we thank you for being faithful to open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts, lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so day 78, laws for ruling the nation. Uh, This is, again, part of Moses' third farewell message. He gives a total of five farewell messages, which is kind of fun to do if you're doing uh, the Ralph Braun uh, walkthrough that he does on a a home evangelism type basis, and you're giving a big picture of of the Old Testament. You can talk about Genesis, then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. When you get to Deuteronomy, you just say five farewell messages and then you wave your hand like this like you're saying farewell and that's the that's the hand signal for Deuteronomy. All right. Well, we're in the midst of message number 3. Message number 3 takes us from chapter 12 to chapter 26. And so uh we're actually going to cover quite a bit of that here tonight. We left off in chapter 16 as we pick up there. Moses instructed Israel to establish local judges and officers to administer justice locally. And I think I mentioned this a little bit last night too. When you handle things, you handle things at the nearest possible level, the smallest possible level, involving the fewest number of people. And so keep it as local as you can, as much as you can, is the process here. So verses 18 through uh, 17, chapter 17 and verse 1, which is just Yeah, one more verse over the chapter break there. So you shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. They shall judge the people with righteous judgment. And so you're structuring it on a tribal basis and the the tribe of Issachar may have slightly different uh, uh, judging procedures and judging uh, uh, stipulations than the tribe of Benjamin or any other tribe, but they're handling it on a tribal basis. And even within the tribes, they'll be handling it amongst the clans on a clan basis. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for the bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. It's just a defiance of God's own character. God is absolute justice, and He is the standard of righteousness and justice. And so anything that's, a, that's a, a, an abomination of that, a, a perversion of justice, is an attack on the image of God. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. 
So again, it's for their life, it's for their blessing, and it's for their continued enjoyment of the land. If they cross over to the cursing side of things, they're going to expect personal judgment, tribal judgment, national judgment, including uh, loss of the land when he takes them into captivity. Moving on, he says, you shall not plant for yourselves an asherah of any kind of tree beside the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make for yourself. You shall not set up for yourself a sacred pillar, which uh, the Lord your God hates. A couple of verses of idolatry that are nested within a larger paragraph centering on justice. And then finally, the first verse of the next chapter, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect for that is a detestable thing in uh, to the Lord your God. All right, so that wraps up the last of chapter 16. Moses instructed Israel to establish local judges and officers to administer justice locally. These judges presided over temporal life legal issues. These judges also can safeguard the spiritual life idolatry issues. This is, uh, it might seem odd at first that we're blending uh, secular judicial things with uh, with uh, idolatry prohibitions and so forth until you realize they are a theocracy. What would you expect those judges to rule on? They should be having the judicial oversight related to the idolatry that might start creeping up in the at the local level, at the family level, at the clan level, at the tribe level. You want to catch it early, you want to catch it quickly before it becomes a tribal issue or before it comes a national issue. All right. Also, I meant to double check to see if uh, the chapter break was different in the uh, in the languages, or if they were the same. And I failed to check that. So, verse twenty-two is verse twenty-two, and verse one is verse one, and that is the same in the. Hebrew and the Greek and the English. All right. Moving on to chapter 17 then. And oh, there's some fun things here. Let's uh, take a look at this. Additional judicial instructions and procedures are put in place. And and we're starting with verse 2 and taking us down through verse 13. And you'll see, If there is found in your midst, in any of your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant. So it just, it's discovered. Don't know how it's discovered, but it's discovered. Somebody brings it up and now it's become public knowledge. This exists and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly host, which I have not commanded. And if it is told you, and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. And so it can't just be a rumor. It can't just be, well, you know what they say, or somebody said this was happening. If, if, if that's the word on the street, if, if news has gotten around, if, it, if these are the stories that are being told, you can't just let it go. You have to look into it, all right? And this is a judicial proceeding. It involves an investigation, and it involves a finding of fact. Because if it's not true, then you want to, you've got another issue you've got to deal with called slander, right? Or gossip or tail-bearing, things that are not true, and you've got to put an end to that. But if it is true, then you've got to take action on that basis as well. Because you don't want the, the, uh, the, the word on the street the, uh, to, to, uh, to be inaccurate if that's in fact the case. 
So reported violations of commandment number one must be thoroughly investigated. Continued violations of commandment number one must be immediately condemned. Do you remember what commandment number one is? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, okay, of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not worship them or serve them. You shall not make a graven idol. All right, so if somebody is doing that, you've got to investigate it. So if, and if it is told you and you've heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates. Okay, this is not mob justice. The, the gates is the place of business. It's the place of, of transactions and commercial business, economic uh, uh, transactions, legal transactions all take place in the city gates. So bring them to the city gates. That is the man or the woman, you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And this is why you uh, you investigate. This is why you look into it. Because you know the word can spread and word can get all over town. And then you start to find out, well, how do you know that? Who told you that? Well, I heard it from so-and-so. Who'd he hear it from? He heard it from so-and-so. And you, and you just track it down and you find out you've got a whole pack of ignorant people that don't actually know anything, but they're just yapping what they've been told. They don't have direct knowledge. So you keep investigating until you find who has the direct knowledge. And if there's one or two, I mean, if there's, you can't have one, you've got to have two, two or three witnesses. If you confirm that this is in fact the case, then uh, you have to take the action. And the hand of the witness shall be first witnesses, plural, shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. All right, the, the, the hand, to, it's like when Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. The, the privilege and the responsibility of first stone casting. Okay, We saw it previously with a murderer and the, uh, the one who was uh, not a murderer, he was found innocent by virtue of, uh, you know, it's not premeditated murder, it's manslaughter. And so he can flee to a city of refuge and uh, he's free and safe from the, from the blood avenger. Uh, but if in fact it is premeditated, it turns out to be murder, then he's convicted, it is murder, and the uh, family members of the, of the murder victim, they get to be the blood avenger. They get to be the first to cast the stone. So we saw that, the hand shall be first. Here the hand shall be first. And this principle comes up in several different contexts. So this is not only is it a feature of the of the legal system, but it also is built in with the um, kind of a safeguard against perjury, a safeguard against uh, lying in your testimony, swearing under oath in a in a false way, uh, because not only are you lying before the Lord in a perversion of justice, but then if you get what you want and your hand is the first against them to put them to death, you're actually a murderer at that point because. This, you're, you're accomplishing the murder by legal means. Um, it's, it's just a wicked thing. So there's a lot to be said for this kind of justice and, uh, and uh, the issues there. All right. So purge the evil from your midst. And uh, the recognition of a purge, like gangrene, you can't just leave it there. 
uh, you gotta you gotta purge it. If if there is idolatry in the land, in your in your nation, in your tribe, in your clan, in your family, wherever that evil takes place, you're polluting your land. So you've got to purge that. That's the expiation necessary to cleanse the land. So investigate and condemn. Any uncertainties in judicial proceedings were to be referred to an appropriate Levitical priest or a judge in office. If any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, between one kind of assault or another, uh, being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall inquire of them and they will declare to you the verdict in the case." See, after we get through the conquest, after the time of Joshua is going to be the time of judges. And this was the, the Lord's design for how they were to function uh, without a king, without, uh, you know, before they, uh, they demand a king, they're going to have judges in office. So they have an opportunity to consult to uh, higher authority to get wisdom on this. And it makes sense that if, if the clan is having a hard time adjudicating uh, between different types of, of issues, then maybe it would serve their interest to, uh, to get a, a Levitical outside opinion, say. And, and maybe there'll be re- reasons why a particular clan would not want to try to, uh, to resolve that themselves. In any event. So go to a, a priest, go to a Levite, go to a, a judge. There will be one nearby. There'll be a Levitical city in your tribe somewhere close by. And according to the terms of the law which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or to the left. So if you do consult to these outside authorities, then their judicial uh, determination is binding. The man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God nor to the judge, that man shall die. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. So you understand what's happened here. The tribal courts have investigated. They've determined it's beyond their capacity to deal with. So now they've kicked it up to a higher court, that being the the Levites, the priests, or the judge. They're going to leave it there. This is an agreed upon um, adjudication. This is like when parties in a suit decide they're going to go through binding mediation or something of that nature. But because the judge and the priest and the, and the Levites, they represent Yahweh himself, you can't defy that. You can't, if you decide, I don't like what he had to say, you're defying the Lord at that point. And woe be unto you. Alright, well that gets us down through verse, uh, yeah, you shall purge the evil from Israel then all the people will hear and be afraid and will not act presumptuously again. And so often we see that this, this, the purpose for this, God tells us, God states explicitly that the harshness of the, of the executed penalty has a built-in deterrence value. Has a built-in deterrence value. And I realize deterrence is, uh, is mocked by, uh, by certain uh, philosophical outlooks today. And they say, oh, there's no deterrence to the death penalty, or oh, there's no deterrence to this, or oh, there's no deterrence to that. But God says there is, and I'm going to go with what God says, all right? That if God's justice is executed in God's way, as he designs it, it is a very much a, a deterrent value in, uh, in the wider culture. The people will hear and be afraid, is what God says is the consequence. 
All right. Verses 14 through 20, the second part of this chapter. Prophetic instructions are also put in place for the time when Israel demands a king. Now we just saw that these these tribal courts um, can go to a, a Levite or a priest or a judge that if they need to go beyond their bound, the boundaries of their tribe, that above them, uh, nothing was said about a king, that they would go to, uh, to a priest or a Levite or a judge. But now there's the anticipation that a future king will be appointed at some point in their future. And uh, so, uh, you know, of course, God in his omniscience knows that they're going to demand for a king, and he's got a plan for that. So he tells them ahead of time, this is what you can expect if you insist on having a king. And even when we reach the point where they are demanding a king, and then he warns them a second time, saying, are you sure about this? Do you realize what comes with kings? Taxes. <laughs> okay? Do you realize what comes with kings? Unfairness. Anyway, let's look at these verses for now. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it, and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. Okay, it's going to take them about 400 years to do that, but they will eventually get there. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. So the Jewish nation needs to have a Jewish king. That makes sense. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. And these warnings come up in writing before they ever even enter into the land. It's a warning that Moses gives that they, uh, they ignore uh, repeatedly throughout Old Testament history. Continuing in verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. And so again, the language of multiplication is uh, is worse than addition. So I mean, you can add without multiplying. Um, He can add soldiers. He he should have a standing army. But the idea of multiplying whereby he's going to be built up with pride over uh, how large his army is, or how large his harem is if he multiplies his uh, his uh, number of wives. We're going to see some of those issues come up with between David and Solomon and the trouble that they get into. Um, verse 18. It shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. So before he can take office, he's got to sit down with his own pen and ink, right? his own quill and parchment. He's got to write out his own copy of Mosaic Law. So I think it would be marvelous. We should put this into place today. That any president before he takes office has to write his own constitution, his own United States Constitution, his own Declaration of Independence, just in his own handwriting on his own paper. I think it would be a great opportunity. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. And so that his own handwritten Bible becomes his own daily devotion that he will read from every morning. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, 
so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. All right, so that wraps up chapter 17. Prophetic instructions put in place for the time when Israel demands a king. God knew that that day would come when Israel would demand a king. He said it's going to happen, and sure enough it happens in 1 Samuel chapter 8. God maintained his sovereign prerogative to select any king that would sit on the throne of Israel. He's in charge. He has absolute sovereignty over not only the boundaries of the habitation, the, time, the appointed times, when a nation rises, when a nation falls, but also the authorities over every nation. He installs kings, he removes kings. He has absolute sovereignty over the affairs of, of man. And so uh, it's, it's stated there in verse 15, and we see this uh, played out in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 1 Samuel chapter 10. He actually gives them what they want when he gives them Saul, when he gives them the Benjamite Saul for their first king, and then he gives them what he wants when he selects a man after his own heart and gives them uh, David to be their second king. The Lord prohibited the king from multiplying horses, wives, and treasure. (laughs) And uh, we read those verses as well in verses 16 and 17. The Lord instructed, and, and we're going to see they fail again and again and again in, uh, in these applications. The Lord instructed the king to write his own copy of the law for himself when he assumes office, not and to pursue a daily scripture reading program. So uh, since you guys are all involved right now in a daily scripture reading program, you would then be qualified to... Um, no, you wouldn't. You're not Jewish. And <laughs> you're not a descendant of David, and I'm just being silly. But what a neat opportunity. We should. I think we should mandate this for our president. Mandate this for every senator and congressman. Uh, write out their own uh, handwritten copy of the Constitution. They, they were swearing to uphold it, are they not? Well, then they should, uh, they should have their own handwritten copy. All right, getting us now to chapter 18. Oh, there's some fun things in these chapters. Moses reminds Israel of the uh, sanctified place of the Levite in their society. You know, and it's kind of strange because we don't really have this, uh, just a, a group of people that are set apart. I mean, the closest thing I guess we have in the, in the church age would be uh, when a local church determines that they're going to uh, take a man and remove him from the workplace and they're going to support him 100% and feed him and feed his family so that he can be uh, totally dedicated to, to study and, and sermon preparation and, and everything else that it takes to be a pastor. And that's maybe the closest thing we have to, uh, to anything comparable to the Levites. Um, but even that is limited because that's just on a local church by local church basis. We don't have and we never want to have anything that is extended to the uh, society at large. We don't want to have a state-funded priesthood. We don't want to have uh, the, the, the ministerial uh, salaries paid for by the, the local state or federal government. That would be the worst thing in the world to have um, uh, taxpayer-funded clergy in, uh, in everywhere that's done. It's, it's a train wreck. All right. Anyway, so we have verses 1 through 8 here of Leviticus, uh, uh, Deuteronomy 18. And it's not the first time this concept has come up. Uh, You'll notice Exodus 29, Leviticus 7, Numbers 18. There have been previous things. You don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing, that uh, the, the Levites are serving the nation in spiritual realms. 
So, the Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion. They shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those who offer a sacrifice, either an ox or a sheep, of which they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the uh, two cheeks and the stomach. You shall give him the first fruits of your grain, your new wine and your oil, and the first shearing of your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen him and his sons from all your tribes to stand and serve in the name of the Lord forever. We don't talk about sheep shearing so much, but there it is. So, uh, you know, when you're gleaning the wool and you're, you're uh, obtaining the material necessary for clothing and, and, uh, and whatnot, the very first shearing, that goes to Levi. And then you get the next one. Okay? Now, if a Levite comes from any of your towns throughout Israel where he resides and comes whenever he desires to the place which the Lord chooses, then he shall serve in the name of the Lord his God like all his fellow Levites who stand there before the Lord. They shall eat equal portions except what they receive from the sale of their father's estates. All right, so that's verses 1 through 8. And there's going to be a lot of that. There's going to be a lot of back and forth because there are going to be Levitical cities scattered throughout all the 12 tribes and then they'll have their own commuting, their own back and forth. Well, they'll have the, on a rotational basis, they're going to have their opportunities to go to the one central place that God chooses. We know it's Jerusalem, but in Deuteronomy, we don't know it's Jerusalem yet. But there will be a place established where God will make his name to reside, and then that will be the location that these Levites will uh, will travel to when those days come. All right, verses 9 through 14. Moses warns Israel to avoid imitating the Canaanites' occult practices. And we've seen a lot of this as well, but this beyond just your run-of-the-mill basic idolatry, uh, this actually comes into more of the occultic type practices where you're actually tapping into uh, demonic power for, for sorcery and things of that nature. So he's warning against that here. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of these nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. All right? Or, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? If the Lord didn't get to your particular uh, form of, of, uh, of sorcery, it's, it's included, believe me. All right? Any, uh, any demonism by any other name, any practices by any other name, okay? So uh, tarot cards, Ouija boards, any, all of that would fall under these things of, of divination or, or uh, interpreting omens and things of that nature. All of it is demonic and none of it comes from God. Whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. Remember the things that will defile a land, the things that are detestable, the things, it's fornication, it's idolatry, it's uh, the shedding of innocent blood. This here qualifies. All right, so these nations uh, which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. I mean, why would you want to? (laughs) Who wants to listen to the demons when you have the, the one true God? 
when the creator God of the universe lives in your midst, when you have a high priest with Urim and Thummim who can inquire of the Lord, when you have prophets that are lifted up in different generations and different times, when you have judges that are appointed in different generations and different times, why would you want to resort to the demons to hear what they have to say? They're a bunch of liars anyway. We have the Lord God to listen to. All right. That's 9 through 14. Largely that is a repeat of material that was given in Leviticus 19 verses 26 through 31. All right, verses 15 through 19. Moses gives a prophetic announcement of the coming Christ. Now this is a marvelous prophecy and it's one that gets so abused and it's one that gets ripped off by a lot of cults and a lot of uh, other religions and so forth. So let's read it for what it is. It's a prophet like Moses. And it's part of his farewell message because Joshua has taken over, but he's not a prophet like Moses. Joshua is a military man. Joshua will lead the conquest. Joshua will, he'll do a fair amount of preaching, but he's not writing Torah. He's not, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's not a prophet like Moses, okay? But Jesus is more than Moses. And that's what's spoken of here. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen you shall listen to him. And so in other words, this is like a prophet and more than a prophet. This is a prophet who is also a deliverer, a prophet who is one who redeems his people, a prophet who, who uh, mediates a covenant, a prophet who gives a law, a prophet who, I mean, Moses was like the preeminent prophet of the Old Testament because of everything that he did beyond what a typical prophet might do. Well, Jesus is that and more. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. You know, in, in a sense, when, when Jesus is born of the virgin in the, in the Bethlehem manger, all of that fire and thunder and fear and terror that they didn't want to, hear, didn't want to listen to, <laughs> he's back. Okay, just in a more humble form. That is the God they rejected. That is the presence that they were fearful of when they wanted, they wanted Moses to be a, a mediator. Well, 1400 years later they're going to get the real deal when, when God becomes man and dwells among us. When the Word becomes flesh, I should say, and dwells among them. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth. Jesus said repeatedly, he says, I'm not speaking of my own initiative. I'm only bringing what the Father has given me to speak. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. You know, there's, there's accountability before any prophet, but accountability before Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is, is infinitely higher. Rejecting his message, rejecting him, you know, rejecting Moses will result in temporal consequences, but rejecting Christ, you know, for uh, the lost estate in Adam means you're not going to heaven. This is, this is a matter of, of eternal life, accepting or rejecting the Christ. So, Whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So yeah, we have this marvelous prophecy in 15 through 19. Okay? 
And it is a prophecy of the coming Messiah, the prophecy of the coming Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this. If you doubt me, then I can show you the book of Acts where it's proven. Okay, But how many other groups claim that they were talking about them? Okay, The Jewish people claim that uh, Moses was talking about Rabbi Akiba in the 2nd century AD, the one that was responsible for the Mishnah and the Talmud. The father of rabbinic Judaism is not Moses. The father of rabbinic Judaism is Akiba. And Akiba is the one that Moses spoke of when he uttered these words in Deuteronomy 18. That's what the rabbis will tell you. And they are not correct. Because they're the ones that rejected the Christ. <laughs> okay, I uh, know what the Muslims will tell you. The Muslims will tell you that he was speaking about Muhammad. That Muhammad was the coming prophet that Moses was speaking of. Okay, That's also a lie from the pit of hell. Muhammad was not Jewish. This coming prophet is from your countrymen. And besides, we know that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. We know that he's from the tribe of Judah. He's Jewish. He's from the house of David. He's born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Uh, and we have, even have a calendar that Daniel gives us. So uh, if it's not Jesus of Nazareth, there's nobody else that it can be in, according to the biblical record. All right, so a prophet like Moses. It's spoken of here. Uh, we have fulfillment of it. Um, Jesus actually alludes to this a little bit with Matthew thirteen fifty seven, Matthew twenty one. You know, sometimes there were there was some confusion too about who is John the Baptist. Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? See, not knowing that they were one and the same, that the the the, the Christ is the prophet. Okay. And so they have divided opinions on that. Luke 24 and 19. Yeah, the, the two men on the road to Emmaus. Jesus the Nazarene who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all the people. So they were almost there. They had him as a prophet. Maybe the prophet. And Jesus needs to open their eyes to see that he is the Christ. The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. They asked the man born blind. They asked his parents, you know, who is this guy? He's a prophet. Yep, but more than a prophet. He's also the mediator between God and man. Moses was the mediator. Standing between a fearful people and uh, the thunder and lightning of God's presence. Jesus is a mediator. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's his redemptive mediation. He has covenant mediation as well that he'll exercise in second advent with the new covenant. The prophet will speak only the words which God gives him. And Jesus says this repeatedly. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. See, the prophet that speaks presumptuously, that says, thus saith the Lord, but you're just kind of giving out your own, your own deal. We'll get to that back in, in Deuteronomy 18. That's condemned. That is totally condemned. This prophet will have the message for which rejection carries eternal condemnation. As we read in 18.19, whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You think rejecting Christ is more serious than rejecting Moses? (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Acts 3.23 will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Consequences for rejecting this greater prophet that Moses prophesied. Alright, then the last part of chapter 18. So are we all in agreement? It's not Rabbi Akiba. It's not Muhammad. It's not Joseph Smith. Okay? Or any other claimants to this anticipated greater Moses that's on the way. It is Jesus. Moses also highlights the test for a false prophet, a true prophet and false prophet. All right, verses 20 through 22 here. The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak. (laughs) You know, he shows up and says, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord says, no, I didn't. (laughs) I didn't tell you to say that. I didn't send you for that message. Or, which speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So if some Jewish prophet stands up and says, thus says Baal, thus says Zeus, hear the word of Xerxes or whatever. I mean, Xerxes was a king, not a god, but he thought he was a god. Speaking in some other name besides Yahweh, put that prophet to death. He's a false prophet. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, uh, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So many of these prophets would have short-term, immediate prophecies that were fulfilled in in short order within the observance of their listeners so that the the long-term prophecies have the... the, uh, credentials there as well. All right, chapter 19. Moses reminds Israel of the law concerning the cities of refuge. Now we covered this not too long ago really. This was fairly recently in Numbers chapter 35. So it comes up here in this farewell message, verses 1 through 13. And again you shall set aside when the Lord cuts off the nations and gives you the, the land and you dispossess them and settle their cities and their houses, you shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of your land which the Lord your God gives you to possess. There's going to be three on the western side, three on the eastern side of the Jordan. You shall prepare the roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land which the Lord your God will give you as a possession so that any manslayer may flee there. So they have the distances marked out and they have the road network in place to, uh, to allow for this. And the manslayer can flee there if he's innocent, if it was unintentional, if it was an accident. If he kills his friend unintentionally, not hating him previously, as when a man goes into a forest with his friends to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies. Okay? You know, hunting accidents, things happen and we didn't intend to. He may flee to one of these cities and live. Otherwise, the avenger of blood, again, the Hebrew, the goel, the, the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, 
So much doctrine that goes into this. The blood avenger might pursue the manslayer in the heat of his anger and overtake him. All right, so these cities of refuge. It takes us down through verse 13. It's material we covered previously in Numbers chapter 35. All right. But again, premeditated murder. You shall not pity him. You shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. Okay? And this has been the case. This is the nature of it. This is what he's been teaching ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. Ever since a, uh, a, an animal had to die so that their nakedness could be clothed. The principle of innocent blood is designed to teach. It is designed to teach substitutionary penal atonement. It's designed to teach the, uh, the, the blessings of our redemption in Christ. And so to shed innocent blood in, in a different context, to shed innocent blood through just random violence or, or you know, uh, a culture of, of the gangbanger mentality that we have across our land or anything of that sort, just the indiscriminate, the, the cheapening of human life just so degrades the image of God that, that humanity bears. And, and, and God does not tolerate that. It poisons the culture, it poisons the land. And so we keep seeing these issues again and again. Purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. What, what did he say when Cain murdered Abel? He said, the blood of your brother Abel is crying out to me from the ground because it was innocent blood and it was defiling the land upon which he was buried. Moses commands Israel to respect the boundary markers as indicators of the Lord's inheritance. Verse 14, you shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set in your inheritance, which uh, you will inherit it in the land of the Lord your God gives you to possess. You know, this is one of the, the prime functions of civil government is the uh, adjudication of, of uh, property rights and, and the, the filing of, of, of deed and claim. And it's, it's a valid function of government and it needs to be administered fairly. And you can't, be, uh, you can't be moving the boundaries and you can't be bribing a judge to, to you know, look the other way when the, when the survey is resubmitted. You know, now the survey is done. And when we see with Joshua, we're going to see land surveys, very detailed surveys that take place here. This is all it is, is theft. It's present theft and future theft, and it's the, uh, it's the readministration of an inheritance in different ways beyond what God designed it to be. So don't be moving those uh, boundary marks. God's the one that's in charge of that. Serious issue. We'll have more to say on that in uh, upcoming classes. Thirdly, Moses reminds Israel of the law concerning the number of witnesses and how to deal with false witnesses. Verses 15 through 21 here. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. It's on the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed. You know, a single guy can say anything. A single testimony? Satan is the liar and the father of lies. He can motivate all kinds of servants to say whatever he wants them to say. And there could be nonstop accusations all day long till the cows come home. But the idea of having two or three witnesses then, this allows for either the confirmation of that which can be verified as being true or the... Um, <laughs> the satanic attempt to try to keep the story straight, which liars can never do. It's remarkable. 
that uh, you, can, you can always weed through the threads and pull the threads and unweave the lies and all the things. When uh, they brought witnesses before Jesus, they couldn't ever keep the story straight to try to, uh, to frame him in that, in that regard. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who will be in office in those days. Again, the judging pattern that is uh, anticipated here after the conquest. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and if he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. So whatever the penalty is, assuming that it was not a lie, assuming it was a true accusation and the man was guilty, if he was worthy of death, then this malicious witness will be put to death. Or if it was uh, slavery, or if it was a fine, or if it was whatever the, 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 uh, the uh, penalty, the legal penalty is, it gets put upon the liar's head. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. So there's a purging, there's a cleansing of the society, of the culture. The liar is gone and he can't do any more mischief. Also it's a deterrent for any other liars that may want to come along and do similar mischief. You know, and I think we've got a system today whereby uh, people look at our uh, at uh, the courts as if it's the lottery, and you can find somebody with deep pockets and find a grievance, and you can sue for any reason or no reason. And if you just have the right uh, jury in the right court or whatever, you think, hey, deep pockets, I, I got my payday. And then somebody else says, well, I want that payday, and then somebody else wants that payday. And sadly. Uh, there's a lot of insurance companies that would just settle out of pocket because they don't want to go through the expense of the trial. And we had it with Travis County when I was working for the county. Again and again and again and again, the county policy was write the check. Write the check and walk away. It's not worth, if it's, if it's below a certain amount, write the check and, and walk away. It's not worth the trial. And, and even if the county's not wrong, they don't care. It's cheaper to settle. And, uh, and, and it's, it's, we've got a culture now that just views that as the, as the, uh, the get-rich-quick scheme. Because it is. <laughs> All right. No, the rest will hear and be afraid. There's the deterrent value for somebody else thinking about doing the same wicked thing. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never do again such an evil thing among you. So, I mean, it's like I mean, the example that's set with Nadab and Abihu do we have more examples after that? Did Eleazar and Ithamar, did they bring strange fire? No, they did not. You want to, want to know why? I think because Nadab and Abihu, okay? Or how about uh, Ananias and Sapphira? Was there anybody after them that tried to scam the thing with the apostles and lie about their, their financial gift? No, the Bible says it never happened again. I think why? I think Ananias and Sapphira, that's why. The precedent gets set. The deterrence is in place. Thus you shall show no pity. No pity. The judicial system has to be pitiless. It has to be uh, according to the standard of righteousness. Okay? Now there's a place, God Himself is a merciful God. God Himself is the absolute standard of righteousness and justice. God Himself. But we're not God. We don't have the capacity to, to, to let something slide and say, well, I want to be pitiful. I want to be merciful. There's not a place for that. When we are the agents of justice, we have to be according to God's righteous standard. We can't bend the rules. 
It's not our realm. It's God's realm. So God may have pity. God may have mercy. God may, um, for example, God did not require David's life when he was worthy of the sin unto death. But that's God's call, not ours. If David would have gone before a judicial court, he was guilty of adultery, he was guilty of murder, he was guilty of all kinds of things. So thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Uh, the Latin phrase for this is the, is the, the lex talionis. This is the, the, uh, the nature of this kind of justice. So, the number of witnesses, two or more, and how do you deal with the false witnesses? Material there, very similar to Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 17, and verse 6. Saw that earlier tonight. All right, chapter 20. How are we doing? We might make it. Because <laughs> we only have to do, I think, nine, we got to finish chapter 20, and then we got nine verses in chapter 21. So, I might even sip some coffee. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 20. Um, fun things here. In fact, I, I, I can ramble with this chapter because um, I quoted this chapter. I quoted some, some principles from Deuteronomy when I went to, uh, when I went to war uh, back in the day. So we'll see some of these things. Moses instructs Israel on the Lord's expectations concerning military service and activity. Okay? And as you read through this, there's some things you're not going to observe. Okay? You're not going to observe preferred pronouns. You're not going to observe uh, the social justice warriors that, you know, trying to understand white rage or anything of that sort. You're not going to be, I tell you, all the things that our Pentagon is focused on right now is, is pathetic. And absolutely, you wonder if, anyway, don't get me going. Um, you, you won't find those in these verses, I guarantee that, Okay. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. All right, So warfare is what it is. And in earthly terms, if a king is going against another king and he sees that he's outnumbered, that can be intimidating. In fact, it might be the case where you're going to sue for peace rather than go to war because you know you can't win. You know you know, there's, there's, there's 10 Russians for every Ukrainian and, and you're just outmanned, outgunned, everything else, okay? But Israel is unique. Israel is the covenant nation. Israel marches under Yahweh Tzibayoth, the Lord God of the armies. So um, don't be afraid. The Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt, He is with you. That's Yahweh your Elohim is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. Not because he's got hocus-pocus special powers, but he is the one that represents God. He's the one that can teach doctrine. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For Yahweh, your Elohim, is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So that's rule number one. Military rule number one, do not be afraid. Before each battle, the priests were to offer spiritual encouragement for the temporal conflict. Just to set the perspective. When I went to Desert Storm, I wasn't afraid of dying and not coming back because I knew that my days were determined before the foundation of the world. 
And when my day comes up, I can't stay here one day longer if I wanted to. And when my day has not come up, there's, there's you know, not an army in the world that can kill me. It's a marvelous thing to know that you're in the will of God and you're going where He wants you to go. So that's military rule number one. Don't be afraid. Military rule number two, exemptions from battle are only acceptable according to the Lord's standards. So there are certain categories of people that are excused. Please consider me excused. Some folks would use that language with Jesus in the gospel record. But this is for military service. Okay, So these are your deferments for, from war. You can flee to Canada and be a draft dodger or whatever. No, these are the legitimate reasons why God doesn't want you on the battlefield. So verse 5. Uh, the officers also shall speak to the people, saying, Who is the man that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle, and another man would dedicate it. Okay, so under that condition, you've got this other, you're at this phase of life right now. You're at this particular stage of life. And we all kind of grow through this similar stage as we leave father and mother and cleave to one another, and as we establish our own household, our own residency. That is a, that is a feature not only of, a, of an individual's life, but it impacts the family, the clan, the tribe. And that's got to be dealt with. You don't want somebody like that on the battlefield. New home builders are exempt until their home is set in order. New vineyard planters are exempt until their vintage comes in. And that could be a three-year delay, by the way. Verse 6, Who is the man that has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would begin to use its fruit. So God gives this exemption for military service. Does that seem silly? I planted a vineyard. Understand what the theocratic nation of Israel is. It's their business to worship the Lord in their sacrifices, in their drinking, in their uh, drink offerings, in their, um, in their priesthood, in everything that they do. Wine was a big part of it. So God says, you just planted a vineyard? All right. No service at this time. Again, you look back to Leviticus 19 and you realize, man, that could be three years. All right. And verse 7, this one was mine. Who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not married her? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would marry her. Okay. So when I shipped out for Desert Storm, this was the condition that, that I was in because I had proposed and by some miracle, Sharon said yes, and we were engaged, and uh, then I went to uh, Saudi Arabia for six months, and uh, Kuwait, and Iraq, and Bahrain, and whatnot. Um, anyway, I found this verse in my daily Bible reading, and I thought, hey, this is my ticket out of here. Not really, but I, so I wrote it out on a, on a little card. Uh, I, just, I didn't write the, word, the verse, I just wrote the address. I wrote Deuteronomy 20, verse 7. And then I took it into my first sergeant's tent and I left it on his, on his bunk, right on his pillow where he couldn't miss seeing it. And, you know, I forget, it took a while, it took three or four hours, whatever. Later in the day, he decided to go in for his afternoon siesta and uh, that's when he found my note. And from clear across the, the, uh, the compound, I, I heard my name. 
I heard the first sergeant shouting, Bolander, and I knew, ooh, he found my note. So I went running over there and tried to act all ignorant and innocent. Anyway, he said, nice try, but you're not going home till I do. Okay. So, engaged men and newlyweds are exempt until they have been married for one year. Okay? Um, This is the verse here, engaged and then we also have the newlyweds that's already been married. And, and remember, the engagement was counted as being married also, by the way. I mean, when, when the engagement contract was signed, when the, the price was agreed, uh, agreed, the parents exchanged the gifts, that was a legal relationship. All right, then we have um, cowards. Cowards are exempt. Cowards are exempt until they can learn to obey military rule number one. Remember military rule number one? Don't be afraid. The officer shall speak further to the people and say, who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? You know, like Patton would say to the, to the, uh, the, the man there in the tent. Let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. So again, it's a deterrent value because fear does promote more fear. Get him out of here, as Patton would say. Military rule number three, appoint a clear chain of command. Notice we've already had officers that have been mentioned on a few of these verses. Um, These officers, what we saw in the book of Numbers where we saw the captains of 50, the captains of 100, the captains of 1,000, these are the officers. These would be like the professional military soldiers. They would be drumming up additional reserves for individual things as they would come up excusing the people with the excused absences and going to war with the, with the maoth that they have. When the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall appoint commanders of armies at the head of the people. And um, so you've got to have a clear chain of command. You also have to have um, an offer for peace that's given at first, the opportunity to not fight. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer them terms of peace. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. So surrender now and you will live. Okay? If you force a siege, well then you just signed your death warrant because the siege will work and you will all die. You will all starve to death while we besiege you and if, uh, you know, if we break in before you starve to death we'll just kill you anyway. So that's the issue there. And that's not unique to Mosaic Law. Every culture through all human history, uh, in going back to ancient times, medieval times, fairly modern times, siege warfare works because people have to eat. All right. If it does not make peace with you, makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men with the edge of the sword, only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself. And you shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. This you shall do to the cities that are very far from you, which are not the cities of these nations nearby. So a slight adjustments depending on whether it's an immediate neighbor or a distant warfare application there. The cities of the people that the Lord, in the land that the Lord is giving you, as an inheritance you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. So in the conquest for the cities they're destroying in the promised land, no slaves, no booty, I mean no uh, survivors, 
if it breathes, it dies. That's the utter destruction of the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. All right, well that gets us down there. And you got the notes. I'm kind of going quickly. Then verses 1 through 9. Instructions for how the city elders might deal with a homicide investigation. Okay? And this is kind of interesting too. What happens if you find a body? If a slain person is found lying in the open country, in the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess, and it is not known who has struck him. So you've discovered the deceased uh, person or persons unknown. The, uh, the PPU is the perpetrator and you don't know. So you've got to investigate. Your elders, your judges shall go out and measure the distance to the cities which are around the slain one. So you have boundaries for jurisdiction. The city which is nearest to the slain man. You know, Pflugerville says, nope, not me. And Austin says, nope, not me. And Wells Branch says, darn, I guess that's, that's my murder victim. Okay? The elders of the city nearest the slain man. They still don't know who the murderer is, but they've got innocent blood on their property. They've got defilement. They've got a problem. They shall take a heifer of the herd which has not been worked, which has not been pulled in a yoke, and the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water which has not been plowed or sown and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. The priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord, and every dispute and every assault shall be settled by them. This is like the grand jury procedures of uh, the Mosaic law. And all the elders of the city which is nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall answer and say, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Washing our hands, we are clear. Our hands do not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Forgive your people, Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people, Israel, and the blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. Notice this is a real issue. It requires God's forgiveness. So you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. How many murders in Chicago go unsolved every year? How many murders in, not picking on Chicago, how about Austin? How many murders in Austin don't get solved every year? How defiled is our land? All right. Lord willing, rapture pending. We have now concluded day 78. means we have concluded week 11. We'll come back on Sunday and uh, begin our 12th week in this through the Bible blessing. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for these laws. And Father, um, kind of interesting to consider. What was life like back then? What was, when Israel was functioning biblically, when their, when their tribes were well adjusted, when their clans were um, walking in the fear of the Lord, when the, the priesthood was leading them in the truth, what was this like? And we're going to see in the, the judges period that they went through such ups and downs and cycles of, uh, of wickedness and repentance. But Father, we see patterned here throughout the whole law of Moses, we see an ideal government being set up by you for the theocratic nation. And we see principles and patterns that uh, we just pray that our nation might emulate your wisdom 
uh, more frequently and reject the world's wisdom wisdom um, every time. So Father, that's in your hands as well. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.